Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to the second in the series of the Politics as Usual podcast. This week I am talking to Thomas Carruthers from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace based in Washington. Now I'm aware that many of you will probably not know who Tom is unless you work in a donor agency or in democracy assistance in some form. And to be honest, the, the reason for the podcast was primarily to talk to politicians and specifically a lot of the politicians that we meet and work with in many of the countries in which we operate. The idea was to try and provide their perspective on how politics actually works in practice, how you get change to happen in very difficult and complex political environments. But I thought it was important to talk to Tom for a couple of reasons, but mainly because he is one of the most interesting and influential thinkers about politics and international support to governance and democracy around the world. And he has been very influential in shaping the way that donor agencies in Europe and in America think about this sort of work and increasingly on how they do this sort of work. Now, I've known Tom probably for about 10 years since he published a book on international support to the development of political parties, where he was quite critical about the way in which a lot of this work was done. And the thinking in that book chimed a lot with what we at Global Partners Governance strive to do in the way in which we do our sort of work. And a lot of his insights, a lot of his thoughts reflected part of the reason why I set up Global Partners Governance in the first place, which was having come from the centre of the British government, where I was doing a job trying to reform the legislative process and thinking about constitutional reform in the UK and trying to reform the Houses of Parliament. I was really struck by how curiously apolitical an awful lot of international support work was when it was dealing directly with overtly political institutions. Now, Tom has been arguing for a long time that if donor agencies generally want to have an effect, generally want to have an impact on the way that governments work, you have to be willing to engage at a political level, which means understanding in the first place what drives politicians and then being willing to work with them to try and make that political change happen. Now, part of the reason why Tom is very interesting is because he is, as he explains in his interview, tried to do this work during his career. Um, As he explains... (laughs) He started off in a, in a rather dull job in um, the American government and then found himself working in, almost by accident, in different countries trying to make political change happen and was really struck by how badly a lot of this work was done. Um, I hope you enjoy the interview. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating and entertaining story about how Tom... Has de- how Tom's thinking has developed over that, that period and how he seeks, how he sought to do this work and how he thinks international agencies should also do this work. And it's interesting because it is drawn from that, that personal experience. Um, for those of you who do know Tom, you will know that um, he is uh, one of the most you know, intelligent people thinking about this sort of work. And... I wanted to make sure that I, we avoided a conversation which just dealt with abstract issues of politics and democracy. Um, and when I started this, this interview with Tom, when I went into his office in, in Washington, 
um, he asked me how long, you know, well, how long do we need for this this interview? Then, so I said, well, probably about probably about forty five minutes. And his eyebrows shot up, and he said, well, no, I've got nothing to say. I don't, you know, I can't, I can't see how we're going to fill that that amount of time. As it turned out, we filled it and then some. Um, uh, and in some ways, I couldn't get him to shut up. But the key point of um, the interview was to try and get him to talk about his own personal experience of this sort of work, which meant that I had to come up with a good first question in order to get that ball rolling. The question I wanted to ask you is, um, how, did you, how did you become Tom Carruthers? Um, in, <laughs> in the sense that you're in this position where you're um, the expert internationally on governance, democracy, advising all sorts of mm. different donor agencies in different parts of the world on how to do this mm. sort of work more effectively. How did, how did you end up here? Well, like <coughs> most personal paths, there's quite a bit of happenstance. I joined the U.S. government when I finished my education, finished a law degree, and I joined the U.S. government in the diplomatic service. And I, in the legal department, I thought I'd be just a kind of conventional international lawyer within the government service. And I was assigned to a tremendously boring office, which had to do with administrative claims against the U.S. government by uh, people hit by U.S. embassy cars around the world, and then they sue the embassy drivers. A tremendously tedious area, rather sad area of work. And I was in despair and thought I would, you know, quit after three months. And I was walking down the hall one day, and <clears throat> I saw some of my superiors in a room talking and so I stopped and eavesdropped on them because uh, that's what one does and they were talking about a new program in USAID, the U.S. (coughs) Development Agency that had to do with supporting democracy and uh, rule of law in Latin America and they they had no idea what this really was. This was 1985 and they needed a young lawyer to go work in that office and somebody who spoke Spanish. I happened to speak Spanish so I went to my boss the next day and said, you know, it just occurred to me if anything ever comes along that's in Latin America and you need a Spanish speaker and has anything to do with promoting democracy or the rule of law, that's been a long interest of mine. And he looked at me and said, that's incredible. We're just creating a position like this. And I said, oh, you're kidding. I'd love to do that, although I hate to give up the fascinating work that I'm doing. Um, And uh, so there you are. So I was assigned to this office, and it was 1985. It was The Cold War was starting to come to an end, although we weren't quite there yet. We were four years away from that, really. Um, but the United States had decided, for various reasons I won't go into, that trying to promote political change in Central America would be a good supplement to other things it was trying to do. That was part of some nasty Cold War politics that was going on in Central America, so I won't sugarcoat it. But there was some good intention as well behind it. And so they assigned me to this office. Congress had appropriated and authorized a whole bunch of money. Nobody had the slightest clue how to spend it. And so I was put on a plane and sent off to places, El Salvador, Guatemala, Panama, et cetera, and said, design some programs to support the rule of law. There was no book on how to do it. There was It was really just groping in the dark. And how, how big was the team that you were working with? No, it sounds t- like you were on your own. Yeah, there were two of us, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah my boss and me. And... Uh, you know, I had a set of kind of colorful experiences going to these countries, interviewing people. I remember going to the Panamanian Supreme Court. We had identified Panama as a country of concern. And so I went to see them and said, you know, the United States is supporting these programs to help strengthen the rule of law in countries in your region. They kind of looked at me, sort of, what's that about? 
And I said, well, it involves assistants of different types. And uh, I was speaking in Spanish and trying to figure out the best translation of the word assistance, which I probably wasn't doing a very good job of. And I had sitting next to me my shiny new briefcase that my parents had given me as a graduation present from law school, the kind of thing parents do for young lawyers. And I, they were, as I was talking about this help or assistance that was coming to them, they kept looking at my briefcase, and I realized they thought there were large sheaths of help, you know, in with rubber bands together in that briefcase that I was going to hand to them, because that's what people in courts were used to getting, right. was that kind of help. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then I said, so we'll be back in touch with training seminars and that kind of thing, and their faces fell in disappointment as I picked up my briefcase <laughs> and left the room. But uh, so we proceeded to set up a whole series of sort of training efforts in that region and so forth, and I quickly became seized by what has ended up being in a sense, the the dynamic of my professional life, Greg, which is, on the one hand, I thought there was something profound about the idea that development assistance should not just be about economic and technical formulas, but actually trying to get into the political bloodstream of other Mm -hmm. countries. And that, you know, the fact that law was actually functioning quite poorly in most of these countries was, was debilitating to these societies. You know, not just contract disputes couldn't be properly handled, but um, you know, profound injustice throughout the society. And the idea that we might try to help them with that struck me as uh, profound, and profoundly important. But, it, but the other half of the dynamic was we didn't have a clue how to do it. Um, we were used yeah. to, you know, technical formulas of going in and saying health programs should have this much vaccination and this much this. Instead, sitting to with the Panamanian Supreme Court saying, why is there so much injustice in Panama? How could mm. How could we help change that? It's an entirely different kind of question. And so I was struck by, we were onto something big, and we didn't have a clue how to do it. And the rest of my career has been spent kind of mediating that that dynamic. And that, I mean, the initial expectation, you said that the Congress had passed, you know, a budget yeah. for, for, yeah. To, for to do this. Was there what was what was the expectation that mm-hmm. what would happen with that money? How much guidance were you given to to go and do this work? Remarkably little. Um, it was the idea was. You know, there was a lot of emphasis on legal and court reform, and that seemed kind of solid and secure in the concept was people like judges, and Americans always sort of revere judges as a kind of untouchable class of good people. And so the idea was go and work with court systems. And we immediately interpreted, or the interpretation was strengthening the rule of law meant strengthening the key institution of justice. It was kind of, Mm. it seemed like a natural conclusion. But there was a problem. <clears throat> Let me tell you about that. I went to Haiti, which was another one of our countries of concern. And so I met with a whole bunch of judges in Haiti. And uh, I remember meeting with the head of the labor court. And he he was trying to understand, again, what I was talking about when I talked about strengthening the courts and that. And, and he finally was a rather corpulent man. It was very hot. And he was wearing a big black robe. And I was sweating in my overly formal suit in his office. And... Uh, and again, we were speaking French in that case, and probably equally badly on my side. And uh, and I was explaining, you know, so the United States wants to help Haiti do this. And he, he finally sort of like the light bulb went off that what, this was not just traditional development aid. This was something different. And he says, I see. So the United States wants to come and help our courts work better. I said, that's it. He's got it. And then he just leaned back in his chair and burst out laughing. <laughs> and he just sat laughing till tears ran down his cheek. 
<laughs> and he said, young man, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Get out of my office. <laughs> um, uh, so, how old were you at this point? Yeah, I was 29, you know. Okay. Um, and, but he, was, he had his, an insight of his own, which was, this is really hard. Yeah. And are you kidding? Uh-huh. You want to you bring justice to Haiti? But the insight was, it isn't going to come by training me to be a better judge. The whole court system in Haiti was simply part of a predacious state which was, you know, robbing the people of what few resources they had. It was part of a state which was a, not a civil state in the Weberian concept or in the Anglo-American idea of a functioning state. And that the idea that we were going to go in and train members of the state to do their functions properly was a very primitive idea of what I've come to call in my writings institutional modeling. Mm. The idea that we know what a good institution looks like, so what we do is we train the poor members of this counterpart institution in this country to act like that. And so I I remember I wrote a report to my boss, uh, um, and I said, we can't do a program to strengthen the Haitian judiciary because there is no judiciary in Haiti. There are a bunch of people mm-hmm. who wear robes and sit in courtrooms and, you know, carry out injustice and are part of a system that's stealing, you know, what resources there are in the country. And so we would have to do a, a program of transforming the Haitian judicial. So you can't strengthen it. You would have to fundamentally transform it. Mm. And that would probably involve not starting with the existing system really so much or not trying to tweak the existing system and make it better. It would be something far more profound and would probably involve citizens pushing for justice from the bottom up. And actually, mm. So I wrote this report. I thought it was a work of genius, actually. And I gave it to my boss. I've and, had that uh, often as well. Yeah, yeah of course. And uh, <laughs> I gave it to my boss and he the next day, he said, Tom, come into my office. And he said, this is a very interesting report. And I'm going to file this where I file my most interesting reports. And he walked over to the rubbish bin, dropped it into the rubbish <laughs> bin. He says, that's where I'm putting my most interesting reports. Now, I'd like you to go back to your office and write a report for a plan to strengthen the Haitian judiciary that will fit you know, the tools that we have to offer. Yeah. And so I, in a way, you know, all of will come to this whole discussion about the incorporation of politics mm-hmm. into development, different methods, you know, sort of uh, work that actually gets at the underlying issues. I was, in a crude way, doing my own political economy analysis yeah. because I, I wasn't trained in development. I wasn't actually trained in politics very much. I was sort of a lawyer. I didn't really know very much about anything in these countries. And so I was I guess asking the stupidest questions about yeah. who has the power, what are they doing with it, why should I assume this guy in a robe wants to be a better judge, or you know, if he yeah. does, he really need to be trained that corruption is bad. Is that is a lack of knowledge? He seemed to be a very intelligent person to me. Yeah. He probably was intensely aware that corruption was actually not a good thing to do in a broader sense, but he was doing it for his own reasons. And how in the world were we going to change those reasons? Why he might be different. And so I think I uh, approached development as a kind of primitivist, if you will, asking these sort of basic questions. And it led me to question right from the beginning, the, you know, most of the, the instincts that I saw this nascent community of development actors having about how to do this kind of work. Mm. And so that questioning led me to leave the government and try to write a book. I got a fellowship and I left to sort of said, no one... No one's written a book about this. There wasn't a single article or book written on this so question of how to pr- how to do political development work, if yeah. you will. You know, so how to do uh, but how long were you doing that for? Because that, that yeah. tension you've described between, yeah. you know, if you, you, you know, if you've got a political brain, if you understand politics, you can go mm. in and, and you see that things aren't working, why they're not working. But then writing, as you say, this brilliant and insightful report, which is then put in the bin, um, that 
resistance. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're sort of, from yes. what you described, you're starting from a blank mm. sheet, mm. but not really because the, this yeah. sheet is actually quite small. Right. Um, the, the, there's the limitations to what you can actually do with this analysis. How long did you do that for? Yeah, not very long. Two years, less than two years. Okay. Yeah, I was a restless soul. And I, it was difficult times. You know, this was Central America. There were civil wars. I have a vivid memory in El Salvador going there and <coughs> I was working with the FBI and they were funding a new police forensic lab. Again, there was this idea, institution building, was that the reason why Salvadoran police are beating their poor suspects and torturing them is because they don't have the proper physical evidence. And if they had the right evidence, they mm-hmm. would use evidence and carry out you know, uh, court proceedings according to the you know, Robert's Rules of Order. And if so, if they could just get the proper forensic evidence, this would solve the human rights program, uh, problem in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. That struck me as madness. But um, I remember <coughs> madness in its sim- simplicity and the, the, the lack of understanding of what the repressive system represented mm-hmm. and the interest behind it and so forth. So I remember going to this <coughs> police <coughs> unit in El Salvador, and I was with the FBI advisor, and uh, so we were there to fund this new forensics lab. And... The uh, the police showed us, well, back in 1971-72, when the U.S. was also involved in uh, El Salvador here intensely, you had funded this earlier lab, and we can actually recover some of the instruments. They still sort of work if we oil them and clean them up. Mm. And I remember the FBI advisor looked at me excited. He says, Tom, we've already got the basis of a lab. It's already here. We can just build on it. And I said, Gary, doesn't it give you pause that you know, uh, about 20 years ago, we did exactly the same thing, and it's all sitting rusted away, and no one's using it. Mm-hmm. Maybe the problem is why don't the police want to develop physical evidence in a proper way, and they just beat people instead. It isn't the lack, again, of a formal institution. It's some deeper motivation or structural set of you know yeah. power relationships. So I, I just kept having that lesson again and again. So I, I got restless. I did it for a year or two. I got a fellowship, wrote this book. It was called, you know, uh, U.S. It was about promoting democracy in Latin America. It's called In the Name of Democracy. But it was actually the first effort, in, you know, to put together in a book uh, a to pose the question of can the United States or any other developed country go to a less developed country and try to, quote, promote democracy, and even if it's genuinely well-intended. Of course, mm-hmm. there's a lot of rhetoric around this, and often there isn't a real intention, but sometimes there is. There, there, you know, there is a genuine impulse on the part of some development actors to help. If you do want to help, what is the real challenge? Why is this so hard? And I was, you know, like, uh, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but it was groping in the dark to try to find analytic frameworks and ideas because this was a completely underdeveloped field, yet money was starting to pour in. And then 1989 came along, the Berlin Wall fell, democracy seemed to be on the move in the world, and not just the U.S., but the U.K. set up institutions, the European Union, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Germans, the Italians, the Irish, the Australians, the Canadians. It began to become an enormous field of activity all based on extremely underdeveloped analytic foundations. Mm. So I felt for myself a kind of mission, which is somebody who's sympathetic to the basic idea but willing to be somewhat independent and skeptical of it needs to create a, a field of analysis of this that, that that's based on some of these, you know, sort of real issues, not just formal institutional modeling. And so that's how I started doing this, in a sense, was reaction to field experience, the opportunity to reflect on it, and then an emerging body of work all came together and provided me a path for what I've been trying to and do. Wh- were you doing from Carnegie? No. Was this no, at the time, I mean, I was in the government for several years, then I left on this fellowship with something called the Council on Foreign Relations, and then I actually finished the book on Latin America, and I actually couldn't decide what to do with myself, because I 
didn't want to go work within one of those organizations doing this again. I kind of felt eh, I wasn't going to be happy being thrown right back into repeating the same programmatic issues. And I wasn't sure what to do, so I was trained as a lawyer. I actually went and worked in a corporate law firm. I uh, actually needed a job mm. and a salary, and so I went and worked there. But on the side, the law firm allowed me to volunteer some of my time, so I continued to volunteer for projects, and I went to a number of parts of the world with the National Democratic Institute, one of the political party institutes mm-hmm. in the U.S., and did different kinds of programs. And it just continued to pique my, my interest. And so then one day I decided, that's it. <clears throat> I really want to... I want to sort of be, I want to be an expert or the expert since there weren't any others. It's easy to be the expert in the field. And I described it to a friend of mine. How should I do that? And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, he says, well, you know, the kind of person you are, the sort of independence you want to have, but practical focus, you would best work in a think tank or, you know, a research institute. I wrote to the head of Carnegie and the head of the Brookings Institution of Brookings never responded to my letter, and the president of Carnegie did, and said, and I remember I met with the president, he said, you seem like an interesting guy. I don't understand this subject. I'm not sure it's what it is exactly, but why don't you come give it a try? And so I came in 1993 to Carnegie and set up, I just grandiosely called it the democracy program. I didn't know what else to call it. Um, and so I just sat down and I remember walked in the first day and already had in mind the first article I wanted to write. Just sat down at my desk and started writing and then you know, kept volunteering for consulting assignments, or in some cases paid consulting assignments in order to get close to the field, see the programs. But then I developed this method, not really method, I mean, I, I decided that, the, you know, the real knowledge is in the people who are on the receiving end of this. <clears throat> so I started doing extensive interviews with people on the receiving end of assistance, you know, dozens, hundreds of interviews. Globally. Globally, yeah, I've interviewed over a thousand people easily, you know, in 40 different countries. And, you know, long, uh, sort of open-ended interviews in which I didn't walk in and say, so was this training program useful for you in the following mm. three ways? To which they always <laughs> smile and say, yes, of course, we loved it. When, when is the next trip to Copenhagen? Yeah. Um, you know, I walked in and I said, what's, what's changing in your world? Yeah. What's the same and what's changing? They say, well, you know, this is falling apart. This is coming together. And then we talk about why is that happening? Why, why is change occurring in your country? Why isn't change occurring on the issues you think people would want to change? So mm-hmm. we start with the reality of what's happening. That only late in the conversation, say, well, you've described in your parliament how it's stuck, but there have been these positive changes. I noticed there have been some activities by some foreigners here. Is that anything to do with that? Or Mm -hmm. how would you describe that? And just be as neutral as possible and allow them to say, yeah, they invited us to a bunch of meetings. You had no idea what they wanted, but they might say, but in fact, actually it was interesting. You know, we we learned something. They say, well, what did you learn? And they'd say, well, we learned that you know, whatever it is. Or they might say, oh, it's to, you know, it's a total waste of time or this. But you, you don't walk in and tell them the answer you want. This is, you know, the problem with so much project evaluation. So I did lots and lots of open-ended interviews. And you also have to give people the space to be, you know, you're the white guy walking in the room and, you know, the white hand, the helping hand. They, they don't want to bite it, partly because they're nice people. And, they're, yeah. you know, they don't want to offend people. And they don't want to say you... Um, but they, they've got the knowledge, so you need to give them the permission to, to articulate it and the, uh, you know, the space to do that in a way that's sort of safe for them. And once you do that, out comes all kinds of stuff. Right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're interesting and thoughtful, most of the people engaged on the receiving end. Then you also try to talk to people who are not directly involved in the system, a journalist who watches the parliament, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a human rights activist who's scrutinizing the activities of government. You don't just talk to the people touched by the system. You try to create a circle around it and sort of see the whole context. That takes a lot of 
you know, a lot of interviews and such. So I started, my first book uh, came a couple of years after I came to Carnegie. I decided to take one country and do a portrait of all of this new politically related assistance in one country from the perspective of people in that country. So I chose Romania because it was part of the post-Berlin Wall, fall of Berlin Wall excitement, and I had been doing work there. So I actually, you know, I started by studying enough Romanian that I could do interviews in Romanian, so I learned Romanian. Uh, which fortunately is a Latinate language, and I you know, spoke a few other Romance languages, so it isn't, wasn't really as ferocious as it might sound. Um, and I started going there, and I went four times on extended trips and interviewed mm, 350 people or so in the country, which is a lot of Romanians, um, in the sense that I was reaching most of the sectors where this assistance was, parliaments, um, local government strengthening, uh, civil society work, media work, you know, all these sectors. And I wrote a book, a short book, uh, which was a, just a portrait of this assistance. It was really just helped crystallize for me what all of this was. And, that. and I sort of told the story of how the assistance looked from the other side. I mean, like a basic thing. Mm-hmm. For example, in Romania, most Americans who got off planes in Romania in the early 1990s had, you know, had only an hour or two before found the country on the map and sort of like, where is this country? I see we're going there. I mean, Romania was a blank, you know, I mean, to most people. And Americans were sort of got there and were like, wow, you must be glad we're here. It's, you know, we could be anywhere, but we're here doing you a favor. Mm-hmm. Whereas Romanians, I soon learned, you know, difficult history of the 20th century, and they difficult particularly around Yalta where they felt that Roosevelt and Stalin sat down together, I think Churchill was there too, and said, uh, you know, Romania goes to the Russians and this country goes to the the Americans and the British and so forth. And they felt that basically the West had sold them out at Yalta and that (coughs) we were finally coming back 50 years later. Um, They had managed to extricate themselves from the Soviet grip over time and that we were coming back to sort of pay off our guilt to them for having betrayed them, and that our assistance was guilt money, and that they were doing us a favor by taking the assistance because it allowed us to ease our own guilt. And so we felt we were there doing them a favor. Mm -hmm. They felt they were taking the money as a favor, a complete mismatch (laughs) of cultural understanding of really what assistance is. So you you get into the deep cultural sort of fabric of of the relationship between an outsider coming to a society Mm -hmm. and someone there, and it's, it, it's you've got to start there and then work up. You know, you can't just say, we offered them assistance and it wasn't effective for these reasons. Wait, 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 wait. Did they understand it was assistance? You know, why did they take the money? What were they thinking? What, who were you working with? You know, so I tried to sort of just build the picture from the ground up of reality. I, that sense, you know, I was not trained in politics. I was a psychology <coughs> major, as really? we say in the U.S. Yeah, I studied psychology. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And I worked every summer in different clinics. I, I worked with... Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, seriously mentally ill people, schizophrenia, and other things. I always say it's good training for working in Washington where you deal with a lot of uh, unusual people, especially these days with our new administration. Um, And uh, so I was trained in, you know, interviews with people. And, you know, when you're in a psychology clinic, somebody walks into the intake hour, they sit down, and you have 10 minutes, and you say, so why are you here? You know, you don't say, you don't jump to a conclusion and say, how do you feel about this? You just say, what's going on? Mm. And they say, well, I, uh, yesterday morning I couldn't get out of bed. And you say, well, why not? They say, I don't know. I, I just, it just felt hopeless. And you say, is this, is that like the first time that's happened? Or is this a pattern? And he's trying to work back. He said, did something mm. happen earlier in the, you know, you, 
you only have 10, 15 minutes to make a decision. Does this person go A, go right to a hospital? Do they go into an outpatient thing? Do they come in next week? Do they come in tomorrow? Are they in danger of suicide? You've, you know, you've got to assess situation very quickly. And so psychological training is actually very good training for doing this kind of interviews or mm. this sort of field research because you walk into the office of a leader of an Indonesian political party. He doesn't know you from a hole in the wall. You've got an hour. And you actually, what you'd like to know is whether or not he's serious about making leadership changes in his party that he's promised to the donors. Mm -hmm. But you can't walk in and say, so are you serious about these leadership changes? Or is that just pro forma things you're doing to make them happen? You want to get to that question. Instead, you walk in and go, you should say, wow, I've heard you're an amazing politician. Tell me about that. That's what a politician wants to tell you. He goes, oh, you have no idea. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm a, I'm a great person. And he said, tell me more. You know, then by the end of the hour, as you're walking out the door, you pause and you turn around and go, it has been such an honor and a privilege to talk to you. I was just wondering, I noticed there's this change on the executive committee and you've, and he goes, no, that's just my brother, you know, I'm, I'm putting in, you go, okay, I was just <laughs> checking to see, you know. So, but, you, you know, so it's not that you're trying to trick people, you're trying to open up questioning and the thinking and that's what the development world has such a hard time doing because the imperatives of the institutions we have to do things quickly to do things in a very orderly and organized way which are all normal you know understandable impulses go against the reality of change processes in human lives Mm. which are messy and and very very different so i think we're going to talk about that a little bit about this evolution of development aid towards this idea of incorporating politics this is what it's about well that that approach is is something that um we try and do as well, which I describe as the Colombo approach. It's oh, mm-hmm. just one last thing. So, mm. can you tell me about this? And it's it's, but, but I wonder at that time how much, how much sympathy were you getting for for mm-hmm. these sorts of uh, what seems, you know, common yeah. sense yeah, in terms of um, how you do the how you design, mm. deliver, mm. measure these sorts of programs. But I'm mm. still struck mm. in all the countries in which we work. The number of projects which tend to walk into another country and say, you're doing it wrong, yeah. you need to do it like this. Mm. And I imagine 20 years ago, yes. the majority of, mm. of, of aid programs will run along those lines. Yeah, it, it was yeah, it was a bit of an uphill uh, not battle that's putting it too dramatically. But there was, yeah, first of all, people didn't like to be questioned. There was a bit of who's this person questioning what we're doing. So I had to sort of just keep working at it and show that I'm... My only intention was to try to help us do it better. I, nothing against the idea. I, w- I would like to be helpful. Or, you know, the, the point of this kind of work was to try to help us think it through. And, you know, the reality is, you know this, Greg, is when you get to the field and you work with, you know, you go interview. I would also interview the people on the inside. You find lots of terrific people who are trying very hard to do good things. They know this. They know the common sense. They, they're fighting with their own bosses, their own institutions who are telling them you have three months to get a strategic plan in place, and then by six months I want deliverable outcomes. By 12 months I want a new committee in parliament. You know, and they say, it's just not how it's going to work here. I, mm-hmm. I need some flexibility. I need... Uh, I need to take in the reality of the local circumstances. And so I would often meet practitioners who would resonate. I would learn from them, of course. And it would, what I was doing resonated very strongly with them, and so they were very encouraging in my work and very helpful because they felt you know, the whole enterprise needed to be reformed kind of from within. So, so there was a bit of, it was boards of directors and you know, senior level often were a little bit upset if I questioned, particularly in some of my earlier works, so I was a little more, restless and often pointed, I would say, in how I put things. And I remember being called to speak to boards of directors of some organizations here in Washington, for example, to say, you know, you've been very critical of our organization. You know, what has led you to do that? Or why are you doing that? I would, you know, have to explain and such. But I didn't get pushback from the people who I felt were 
trying to solve the problems on the ground. I felt actually mm-hmm. a f- a some feeling of, you know, um, coming you know coming together with them in a in a common point of view. Mm-hmm. And what you described, I mean, your your background, um, mm-hmm. it's very striking. In the last few years, the mm-hmm. the the way in which behavioral economics has become. You yeah, know, th- to the forefront of a lot of th- this sort of discussions, and one of the other interviews I've done is with David Halpern, mm-hmm. who's run running the Behavioural Insights yeah. team mm-hmm. in the UK, and a lot of the nudge stuff. Um, but at that time, yes, uh, how did it develop? I mean, from the mid nineties to where we are now, mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. how did it start to change? You're right. It's a, you know when I see the the new trend for behavioral economics, you know, it's hard not to smile and think, wow, economics meets the real human being, mm-hmm. you know, and the real human being turns out to be complicated, greedy, selfish, complicated, egotistical, irrational, you know, all the things that all of us are, you know, and that, that behavioral economics meets the real man or the real woman and tries to deal with them. It's about time. Mm. Glad they got there. It just took a little while. Um, and so, yeah, in the mid-1990s, uh, you know, you had this big insight that sort of had come to the development community in the late 80s and early 90s, which was, in a sense, governance matters, which came about from a a lot of market reform type programs that were put into place and good sort of (coughs) ideas about reforms were put into place, but then they didn't work as planned. So for example, privatization, there was a big wave of privatization privatizations were done and hey guess what uh, all of the wealthy people in the country managed to subvert the privatization process and buy all the assets at a low price and consolidate all the money look at Russia today mm-hmm. the result of privatization was a massive transfer of wealth to a russian oligarchy which has you know essentially robbed the russian people of enormous amount of resources unfortunately some people have called it the largest transfer of wealth in human history um, and <clears throat> that's, you know, London sees it every day. Mm. Walk the streets of London and see the transfer of Russian wealth. Uh, why did those private, the privatization programs were designed by brilliant economists who, you know, understood exactly how the privatization took place, but then they hit the, the rough reality of very weak rule of law, no habits of market behavior, et cetera, and they, they went awry. And privatization programs in many places, not just in developing countries, didn't turn out. You know, that is, as many British people feel every time they get on a train in the UK, they, they start asking, why did privatization go this way mm. um, when it, it had such promise? Not that I'm against privatization. I'm, I'm against any economic reform program that doesn't take into account the reality of how, you know, the society actually functions. Is there enough law to sustain it? Is the distribution of wealth such that it will distort this process and so forth? So you had the market reform ethos hit the reality of the complexity of developing countries and out of that came the insight quote governance matters Mm -hmm. and from that then came so what do we mean by that and the first wave was oh we need to have a good judiciary because we want the rule of law we need to have a well-functioning parliament so they began to look at more political institutions and say they're not in good shape and so there was this embrace by the development community of a new governance agenda working on these institutions that was phase one, but phase one quickly ran into problems, which is you then went and trained the judges that corruption is bad, you trained the parliament to be more efficient, etc., and it bounced off. You trained the parliament to have these great committees and do that, and it turned out there were vested interests that still distorted the process. So phase two was, wait a minute, we've we had the insight that governance matters, we've gone to these institutions, and phase two was we need to get beyond formalized methods of trying to change these institutions and think about, wait a minute, an institution like that is a 
is a result of a whole set of interactions between citizens and the state and power relationships. And so those would have to change with the institutional change. So we probably need to engage citizens directly and help activate citizens who are going to push for change in their country. We need to get at the underlying rules that have sort of established these institutions and talk about how those might change. We can't just work on the surface of the lake, you know, sort of uh, drawing designs on the thin film of the surface of the water, we need to get down into the lake and, and swim in the waters of that society. And that's where the development community has tried to go, this phase two, into taking, quote, politics into account. Mm. It's hard. And, and then as you do that, A, you're overwhelmed by the complexity of the enterprise. Mm. You know, how does one make, <coughs> you know, a society more just or uh, laws of a society, you know, better, quote, it's incredibly complex. And secondly, it's extremely sensitive. You know, you're no longer telling the minister we want to deliver to you many vaccines and this many, you know, four-wheel drive vehicles to reach the rural parts of your country. Instead, you say to him, actually, the reason <coughs> the health system in this country is so poorly functioning is because, you know, this government systematically disfavors this particular ethnic group or tribal group and favors that one. You've distributed resources in a way that are actually about the political balance in this country, and you're probably not going to redistribute those resources more fairly until you have some kind of changed power balance. That's mm. minister doesn't want to hear you talk about that. He's like, I thought you were here to help with the health system. Suddenly you're telling me I have to renegotiate mm. the underlying political settlement in my country between, you know, wait a minute. That's not what donor organizations do. Donors are supposed to help deliver yeah. health to my country. That's where we are. We've finally gotten our hands around the essence of the issue. But once you do, you're stunned by both its complexity and sensitivity. Mm. That's the dynamic, I think, that's now sort of gripping, you know, the leading edge of the development community that's trying to grapple with these issues. And, I mean, obviously, your, your book from uh, a couple of years ago, The Almost mm. Revolution, about how... Um, development agencies have sort of mm -hmm. taken on politics, but not not mm. really. Mm. Um, since the, since the publication of that book, mm. we've seen the, yeah. uh, the rise of problem-driven iterative ad adaptation, yeah. um, and a great in, uh, interest in doing development differently, thinking, mm -hmm. working politically. Mm. There are signs that uh, lots of people are interested in doing this in a more political mm -hmm. way, which, to my mind, is. You know, certainly in the fields in which we work, when you're working in governance, mm. you have to be thinking, understanding, engaging with politics at that level. But it's contentious and it difficult is. and complex, as mm. you've said. I mean, what's your sense of, of where we are now and mm -hmm. how optimistic are you about the, the, the extent to which that sort of programming is likely to spread? Yeah. It's in a quite a small part of the development field it at is. the moment. I'm optimistic, Greg, that there's now a critical mass of people in enough organizations who've, who've come to this view that uh, the technocratic approach to development is, is, is an empty suit or potentially a dead end. I think there really is a critical mass of people at different levels in significant organizations ranging from uh, the Department for International Development to the World Bank to the U.S. Development Agency to a number of other European development agencies and, and more broadly. So I think there's a critical mass of people, and I don't think it's going to go away because it's a fundamental insight. This isn't just a fad. This isn't, oh, I know, let's do bed nets impregnated with insecticide this year, and then next year you discover the bed nets. This is a way of thinking about how societies change. And once you have this insight, the idea that you're going to go back to just providing narrow technocratic aid that you know is on the superficie of a society is, is unlikely to me. But I'm less optimistic that even this thoughtful vanguard of people within all these organizations are going to be able, it's going to be very difficult to change, you know, the basic 
relationship of assistance for a couple of reasons. First, because, as I said, the sensitivity. It's very, you know, development. It's, this insight is happening at the very time when the power balance between many developing countries and donor countries is changing. And so if the United States goes to the Indian government today or the British government, the Indian government says we'd like to change the aid relationship and be able to work on these more essentially invasive, sensitive things. This is coming at the moment when the Indian governments feel like, you know what, this whole development assistance thing, we, we did that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, it's kind of yesterday. Mm. We're moving ahead. You know, we're on a trade agenda. We're on a private investment agenda. You know, we, do we really need this aid? So it's happening at the very moment in which aid is losing its its traditional position with respect to many countries. And then <clears throat> secondly, it's coming at a time when Western publics are asking a lot of hard questions about why are we still mm. giving development aid? Mm. And the result of that questioning, which is a, you know, a natural and healthy questioning, unfortunately is to push for a narrowing of the approach to aid and say, let's just give money for the things that clearly, let's just feed some children. I'm, I'm, I'm okay if it's giving money to provide some food supplies to these children. And it's, it's value for money, which we're all for value for money, but it's value for money in the very narrow sense of don't spend time thinking and studying and talking. Just do it. Mm. And just do it, unfortunately, results in a very lean staff on the development side that doesn't have the time and the space to actually think through and engage in more complex processes. And it also sets unrealistic and very narrow objectives for assistance mm. that are rather unrealistic. Go to this country and in six months deliver this and then move on. It, as we've learned, isn't how change appears. So both the sensitivity coming from the recipient countries and then also the drive for a narrowing and a, a sort of questioning of aid is, is leading the wrong direction towards a rather mechanistic and unrealistic approach to aid on the, the donor side. Mm. So these are the two imperatives that are making it difficult to achieve this revolution. Well, it's that, it's, it's that gap between, I think, the, those, the, the people who are involved in actually delivering the projects and seeing how these things change, understanding mm. Mm. You know, how, the, how the politics works, and the procurement process. And they, they seem to work at different incentives. And as you say, I mean, you can see this in the UK in particular, there's a simplifying of the aid debate mm. on value for money, which is boiling down to unit cost. Mm -hmm. Now, for the same amount of money, you can buy hundreds of thousands of plastic knives and forks, mm. or you can buy fewer sets of decent cutlery, mm. which will last longer mm -hmm. and do the job better. And there's yeah, a danger right. of just ending up buying lots and lots no. of plastic knives and no, forks. No question, yeah. Um, and w so where do you see this going from, from here? Um... I think it's going to continue to be a struggle because I think the critical mass of people is serious. They're 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 kind of well armed intellectually now, and they're they've learned a lot and they're determined to do this better. And I don't think the general imperative in the world of richer countries trying to help poorer countries is going to go away, despite the public's questioning of there's still massive inequalities in in wealth in the world. And I think development assistance has a place in trying to reduce those still. So I think we're going to keep trying. I think the mechanisms are going to continue to be resistant, but what happens is the good thinking and action flows out to smaller initiatives and experiments and <clears throat> in some cases private foundations that have greater flexibility and so forth. So I think we're still in a phase of trying to prove that a better way of doing this can lead to better results, and I, I think we're actually going to get there to some extent on that whether that will meet the standards of proof that, that are you know, set up by the very narrow and mechanistic sort of desire to do things quickly and in a very well-defined way, I'm not sure. But I, I think we're in for another five or 10 years of struggle on this and, and the outcome is, is uncertain. But that's, 
whenever there's a very tough struggle, you know you're on to the right thing in a sense. Mm. It's, it wouldn't be a struggle if it weren't the right thing. If it were so easy, we'd probably be back to just telling judges that corruption's a bad thing. That's mm. easy. And what are you working on? What's next for you? Well, doing a bit of this and that, but um, doing some work on how civic activism is changing in the world. We're sort of doing some interesting research with some colleagues from about nine different countries around the world on how, as we move away from the formalized NGO model that was very popular in the donor world and in a number of developing countries towards more fluid kind of organic civic protest movements in some countries or civic movements of different types. How does that change civic activism and how does it change the donor response? Doing some work on that. Then I've also been doing a lot of work on the closing space for assistance. A lot of countries are pushing back against assistance, creating laws that make it hard to give assistance to civil society out of the sense of sensitivity and the change power balance. So we're doing work on what's the best way to respond to that. And then, of course, looking at the changed U.S. role, given changed political situation in the U.S., you know, the U.S.'s new administration is asking fundamental questions or will ask fundamental questions about the U.S. role in this area, so I'll be doing some work on that, too. I'll look forward to it. Hmm. That was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I told you it was good, didn't I? Um, as you can probably tell, I could have kept talking to Tom about some of his experiences and his approach to this sort of work for probably another hour at least. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you did enjoy it, please remember to go to iTunes and like and subscribe, which helps us. If you didn't enjoy it, then, well, bluntly, what are you still doing listening to this? Go away. Um, next time, we have Jackie Smith, the first uh, female British Home Secretary and somebody who's been working with us uh, in our work in Jordan for about five years now. Uh, an incredibly capable, interesting and down-to-earth politician. And again, the interview uh, about her uh, background, her approach to politics and uh, how she approaches this sort of work now is, is fascinating. I hope you can join us then. Until then, bye for now. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.